You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dustin Good. I'm the pastor of discipleship and seniors care here at Calvary, and it's my joy and privilege to bring to you the Word of God this morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew 18.6, so if you want to flip your Bible to Matthew 18.6, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair in front of you, and you can take that home as our gift to you. Um, The Bible contains what we need to know about who God is and what he's done and who we are, what he requires of us, and what he's done in Christ to bring us back to himself again. And so, please, take a Bible if you don't have one. So Matthew 18.6. And if you're new to the Bible, um, Matthew's towards the end of it, and 18 is the big number, and 6 is the small number. Matthew 18.6. So let's read the text, and then we'll... We'll get into it. Matthew 18, 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. (laughs) When Penn asked me to preach parenting from this verse back in December, I was like, really? Uh, Okay, I'll give it a go. Um... Okay, so this is an intense verse that Jesus has given to us here. Um, And preparing this sermon for me was not an easy task, because of the severity of what I thought Jesus was saying, I wanted to make sure I knew what he was saying. So I spent a lot of time researching and digging and meditating before I ever wrote anything. It's just so much thinking, so much thinking to make sure, do I have this right so that I apply it right to the people of Calvary? And I trust God that, ha- that he has done that for me today, and that it'll be for your good, for everybody here, even if it at first cuts you open. Um, this is kind of the kickoff to a few parenting things I'm doing in discipleship, this sermon. Um, then also, with your bulletins, there's that one-page full letter there. Um, that's concerning another initiative at Calvary. When we have every two to three months, we have all the kids in the service for the whole thing. Um, to worship together with the children. And so that letter is just a bit of an explanation of why we're doing that, where it is in the Bible, and then for parents specifically, things you can be doing at home to prepare for that, to make it more enjoyable for you, more beneficial for your kids. But I would like everybody to read that letter because it does have stuff in it for how the whole congregation, we can work together in this thing of helping the kids worship through that service and everything. So it is a letter specifically to parents, but for everyone. Just how this is a sermon specifically to parents, but it's for everyone. There's lots of parts of this that are for everyone. And then at the end of the month, so our next uh, kids in, the whole service is at the end of uh, April, so have a month to work on some things to get ready at home for them to be in the service. And then I don't know when, sometime in April, probably near the end of April, we're going to start releasing uh, weekly or bi-weekly uh, parenting podcast, uh, 15, 10, 15 minute long kind of things, just little tidbits that you can uh, hopefully, hopefully they're helpful. Kat and I will be doing them together. 
Um, so this sermon, that letter, parenting podcast, just trying to help parents at Calvary um, in the training and instruction of your children. So the title is The Weight of Parenting. And in this sermon, I'm going to be arguing for the deliberate shepherding of Jesus' lambs. That word's important, the deliberate shepherding of Jesus' lambs. And so if you're not a parent, please don't think to yourself, oh, this isn't for me. Parents, are, of course, are on the front lines of shepherding children, but everybody here, everybody here is in some shape or form a shepherd of children. Whether you're a teacher in a public school or, a, or any school, a uh, Sunday school teacher downstairs, a youth leader, whether you're a grandparent, even older siblings, and actually every church member here. Everybody is in some way and to some measure shepherding children. And we'll see how as we go along. So everybody, brains on. Let's dedicate our attention to what Jesus said about his little ones. I'm going to pray first, though, because I definitely need help with this one. Well, everyone, but specifically this sermon, so. God, please send your spirit to enable me to speak, connect mind to tongue. Um, but even if that's, like, if that's what happened and you answered that prayer, that's not enough. We need, we need the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to apply your word to our hearts, to change us by your word. Even as you've changed me by studying this word, you've put a bit of that fear of God into me by this text, and I thank you for it. I also thank you for the grace of God, because without that, we're just so dead. We're, we're just, we're done for. Thank you for the grace of God. So, yeah, please help us, Father, this morning in all sorts of ways for Jesus' glory and our good. Amen. So first, we're looking at the severity of the teaching. What is it actually saying? What is Matthew 18 actually saying? Most commentators say that Jesus isn't referring to physical little children, but he's using the example of this child standing before him. So in, the, in Matthew 18, Jesus calls a child before them, and they're all looking at him. At the, the disciples are looking at this child. And that child is meant to represent the most insignificant-seeming believer in the kingdom, in the church. Well, I think that's definitely true. I think Jesus was using this kid as like a physical example of what he was trying to teach. But then, who would be the most least in the kingdom of God in the askew eyes of the disciples than a believing child? That would be the bottom of the bottom in their minds. And so I'm using this passage today to zero in on believing children and the children that we pray will one day believe that God's given to each of the families here at Calvary. This is not a safe place for children, this world. It's not a safe place for children. Because if they manage to make it through the birth canal without the multi-billion dollar industry of abortion taking their lives, then it's like anybody's guess what's going to meet them on the other end. They might have abusive parents. They might have abusive relatives. They might be born into poverty. I'm talking worldwide. And used as slaves in any manner of evil their captors can create to make money off them. They're vulnerable. They're easy to exploit. They might be neglected, unloved, unfed. They might have their heart broken, uh, their dignity taken, their humanity removed. They might see things that no child should ever have to see and hear things that no child should ever have to hear. And when there's war, suffer. our children suffer the worst, definitely. 
And where there's lawlessness, they're never safe. So in a world like that, a world of sin, a world of evil like that, Jesus wants us to know in no uncertain terms that the church is to be a safe place for children. The church must be a welcoming place for children. It should be a place where children are protected, nurtured, and esteemed. And he makes this clear by essentially saying in our passage today, like if I was going to put it into Dustin's speak, if I was going to take Matthew 18.6 and just put it into my language, it's, it's like Jesus is saying, I love my sheep. I would lay down my life for my sheep. You know I'm about to lay down my life for my sheep. But if you touch my lambs, I will tear you to pieces. That's what I see him saying there. Jesus has a special place in his heart for his little lambs. Uh, Isaiah 40.11 says, He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment, like right close to his heart. John 21.15, When they had eaten breakfast, uh, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, more than the other disciples? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Well, feed my lambs, he told them. Or Mark 10, 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. And after taking them up in his arms, he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. So we need to be careful how we live, so that we're a help instead of a hindrance to Jesus' lambs. We don't want to be a thing over which they stumble, the way we're living our life. And we older Christians, we should be striving to live our lives so that the only stumbling stone is Jesus himself. The only falling that any of us should want to produce is a falling at Jesus' feet. May we not, never be among those who purposely put an impediment in the way of a child who is actually coming to Jesus. Let us be diligent to not be the cause of a lamb tripping and falling. And God forbid that we should openly entice them to sin or cause them to distrust or desert the one they ought to trust and obey. Let us fear let us fear, lest any one of us should be the cause of some lamb falling away, or of them coming to think unfavorably or unjustly of the one whose name is faithful. Some people think there's no place for fear in Christianity. They'll say, perfect love drives out fear. First, that's not even what that verse means. But second, like what other response is, is sensible when Jesus is threatening us with a watery grave in the depths of the ocean. Like, isn't a little fear acceptable in that circumstance? A little seriousness, a little sitting up straight in your seat, some attentiveness. Does he have your attention? Like, he definitely had the disciples' attention. And here's why. There was no mistaking the seriousness of what Jesus was saying to the Jews of his day. Because having a stone fastened around your neck and being chucked into the ocean was corporal punishment used by the Syrians, the Greeks, and the Romans. They knew about this punishment. And it wasn't often employed. It was pretty rare because it was specifically for the crimes of parricide, which is killing your parent or a close relative, which is rare in, in the old days. 
Um, and the high crime of insurrection. So, like, mounting an insurrection against the emperor. Killing your relative, mounting an insurrection against the emperor. Jesus is likening it to that. He's likening the crime of leading a lamb to sin like killing your relative. He's putting it on par with that. He's saying, if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it's like mounting an insurrection against the king of their heart. That you actually become a ringleader against the kingdom of God. That's what he's warning us about. And he says it would be better if we were drowned in the ocean than to cause even a single little one to fall. It would be better, like it would be more advantageous to everybody involved if if we just did that. It'd be more profitable for the kingdom. It'd be more helpful to the church. Jesus says it would be better. And that's intense enough, but Jesus piles even more intensity on the picture. Because usually when the Romans did it, they would tie a rope around a rock, maybe the size of your head or something, and tie that around your neck, chuck you in the water. Maybe if you're strong, you could, you could tread water for a few minutes, whatever. Eventually you get tired and it would pull you down. Well, Jesus says to tell, tie a great millstone around your neck. Not just the one from a hand mill that was like common to every Jewish family, like it would be about that big, but a great millstone. It took a donkey or two to turn this thing. Two beasts of burden and a team of men to put it in place, much less tie it to someone's neck and throw them over into the ocean. Like Jesus is upping the ante on the picture even more. But of course, he's not advocating, we do know this hopefully, he's not advocating for suicide, right? Just as if you look down in verses 8 and 9, he's not advocating for self-mutilation, you know, pluck out your eye, cut off your arm. He's not actually saying that'll like help you not sin. He's giving a graphic and terrible hyperbole. He's speaking in exaggerations to make his point crystal clear. But don't take his exaggerations to mean that he doesn't mean anything. Like so many people take exaggerations like that. They say, oh, he's exaggerating. He probably means nothing. But he definitely means something. He wants you to feel the intensity of his protective love and care for his lambs. He wants us to feel that. He doesn't want you to slip into a careless Christianity that would teach the youngins to sin. He wants, you, he wants us, he wants you to stay away from cliff edges and big pits spiritually so that those stumbly little lambs don't follow you and fall, fall to their doom. He wants you to know how much he hates sin and how loathsome it is to him. And he wants you in whatever capacity that you lead children and however you are an example to them to live deliberately. So I want all of you to hear this, but of course, especially the parents, you're on the front lines, but everybody, if you aren't deliberate in your Christianity, in your parenting, then you will do harm. If you aren't deliberate, you will do harm. That's what will happen. So that's the severity of the teaching. Is it pretty severe? Not very North American? It hit me really heavy, like a millstone. <laughs> um, we're going to move on to the application of this teaching. So that's what I think he's saying. How does it apply to our life? What sort of response should we have from this heavy word of Jesus? Because all of us, in some way, we're failing parents, or we're failing grandparents, 
or we're failing leaders of children in some way. Like we don't even attain to our own levels of perfection. There's always sin mixed into our best efforts. There always is. But we can't just all go drown ourselves in Gull Lake because then where would our kids and grandparents be or grandkids be if we were all gone? So what, what are we supposed to do? Well, what this word from Jesus, I think, is meant to do is like slap us around a bit, wake us up from our stupor, and purpose to the best of our ability in the fullness of the Holy Spirit to live deliberately. I have seven areas we need to be deliberate in so that we can do our little ones good and not harm. All of them directly apply to parents, of course, and some of them apply to all of us, everybody here. And they aren't things like, like, I hope we're all on the same page. We know it's wrong to teach our kids uh, how to find pornography on the internet. We all agree that's wrong. That's a bad thing to lead your kids to do. Thanks, Kathy. Kathy, thank you. Uh, teaching your kids to lie, to get out of things, that's a bad thing to teach your kids to do. Like, I think we're all on the same page there. So these seven things are things we might not usually think about that we have to be deliberate in. And we don't want to lead our kids to sin by neglecting these things. First is associations. Proverbs 13.20 says, The one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a a companion of fools suffers harm. So who are your kids companions with? Who do they walk through their lives with? And other than hopefully you, who's the most influential person in your kids' lives? You must guide this. You must Don't just let it be. Don't just let it be whatever with whoever. Deliberately foster in your children a love for godly people and for biblical friendship. And if you don't know what biblical friendship looks like, well, Pastor Ben preached a great sermon back on March 4th, 2018. March 4th, 2018. You can find it on the website, Biblical Friendships. Um, Parents, ask some saints that you look up to, to like adopt your family and adopt you and help you and help grow you. And I thank God for the many of you. There's many of you who have adopted my kids under your wings and you do them much spiritual good. You take an interest in their life and you do it on purpose. And I thank you for that. They often hear things better from you than they do from me. They've heard it so many, I can't think of any new ways to say it. And you'll say the same thing and they'll hear you. And once I get over my pride, I think, well, okay, I don't care how it comes. I just want it to come. I want that good for my children. And it often comes from you. And senior saints, I have a challenge for you. Senior saints here at Calvary purpose to adopt a family in this church. Like, for real, actually do it. Like, you're going to probably have to push yourself way beyond your comfort limits. But seek them out. Seek out one of the families in this church. Develop a relationship with them. Tell them you're praying for them and how you can pray for them. Encourage their faith. Encourage their kids' faith. That's what people are doing in our family. So find a family to do that with. We need to do this together and deliberately. Second area, what they watch and what they listen to. Jesus told us in Luke eleven thirty four, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. So what you look at is what you become. And what you listen to becomes how you think. What you look at is what you become. What you listen to becomes how you think. That's true for adults and especially for children. So do you know what your young ones are up to on their tablets? 
what they're watching on the TV, on the internet, where are they going? Do you have filters on your devices and on your computer? Recent research shows that most boys are exposed to pornography for the first time at six years old. That's in the States, but I don't think Canada would be much different. Six years old, that's horrific. So are you making your home a safe place? A place with walls to protect those who are under your care from demonic influences. You should limit their consumption of media. Read books instead. Uh, go outside, color, do anything. Have a, have a cap on media intake. Because don't forget, too, this is for older, older, sheep, older lambs, too, that are on YouTube and TikTok and stuff. There's preachers all over that, all over the Internet. Not preachers preaching from pulpits, but preachers of ideas and alternate truths and all the world's pleasures. They're preaching to your kids. To not be deliberate in this area is like encouraging your, friend, your kids to go play out with a pack of hyenas. You need to be deliberate about that. And music's not neutral. I've heard this so many times. I don't really listen to the lyrics. I, I just like the music. Like, I've heard so many people say that. And it's just nonsense. Music is the medium by which so many thoughts and philosophies come into our minds and perspectives. That's how they're driven into our heads, how they get in. So don't just let your kids listen to whatever they want. Help them make good choices and things that are good for building up. Example is the next area to be delivered in. This one's for all of us. So if you're fading out on those last two, example, here we go. Children are superb at sniffing out hypocrisy. And I'm afraid to think how many little ones, I've grown up in the church and I've seen a lot of this, how many little ones have grown up to be men and women who fell away from the church because of the bad example of the Christians around them. Christians who don't do what they say. Christians who didn't grow or even change in 10 or 20 years. Christians who are selfish and petty and care more about their preferences than standing down for the good of the whole. Christians who are one way around churchy people and another way around everybody else. Christians who don't seem to know God or love him even or obey him. Christians. What example is imperative to show the lambs? What, what, what must we be showing them in our example? Well, at Calvary, our goals are to go deep in Christ, to live authentically, and to make disciples. Those are goals that must be deliberately pursued. They aren't just going to happen naturally, without effort and purpose from us. To follow Christ is a thing that can only be done deliberately. Like, I'll, I'll even be so bold to say, very clearly, if you are not deliberately, thoughtfully, purposefully following Christ, you aren't even following him at all. Rather, you are doing harm, and you're causing little ones to stumble. I would like that to land on you, especially if the Spirit is actually doing work and pressing it into you. Let him press it right in and squirm under it. Because remember the severity of Jesus' millstone warning. And then do something about it. Don't be the cause of some dear little lamb's fall because of your bad example as a Christ follower. Or maybe you call yourself a Christian, but deep down you know you're really not. You don't care about God or his word or his honor. Then I plead with you to hear this warning of his. Repent and believe in the gospel. And get both feet into this thing. 
Because you have one life to live. Stop wasting it on yourself and live in such a way that the little ones will know there is a God in heaven. Next area is neglect. There are many things that we can neglect to the harm of the lambs. Lots of things that we can neglect. But the, zero, the one I want to zero in on is discipline. There's two streams of discipline that run beside each other. Formative discipline and corrective discipline. Let's talk about, we'll talk about formative first. Formative is the proactive and ongoing training of the lambs. It's like the passing on of the faith to them. It's the formation of a human being. Formative discipline is forming a human being. It's not a thing that's just to be left to a pastor or a youth leader or a Sunday school teacher. All those people are great helps along the way. But the God-ordained, primary teacher of the faith in the lives of your children is you, parents. And you, specifically, fathers. Because the fathers are told in Ephesians 6.4 to bring up their children in the training instruction of the Lord. God chose Abraham that he might command his children after him to keep the way of the Lord. Genesis 18.19. And Deuteronomy 6 instructs parents to claim like every moment of life. From the waking up to the lying down and all the walking and living in between. To teach your children the way of the Lord. Like we're, as parents... We're to have the kingdom of God always at the front of our minds and always at the ready in our hands. It's our job to display and convey the heart of God to our children. God must do the heart work in our children. We can't do that. God must change the heart. But as far as it depends on us, our goal should be to produce children who become men and women who one day are a blessing and a help instead of a detriment to their own churches. We should be training them up so we could pass the torch on to them, the torch of the faith to the next generation. We need to be deliberate about that, to form them into people. Oh, yeah, I already said that, sorry. To, um, to deliberately shepherd your children like this, it requires both. It's, it's two things. It's like scheduled and planned times, like a family worship or Bible reading before bed these plan times, but then most of it is like day by day, moment by moment, looking for the opportunities to, to bring it back to God, to teach something in the moment. And it, it takes living deliberately to do that. Then we have corrective discipline. This type of discipline is meant to correct strings from the path, back to the right path, God's path, and rebellion. It's, it's rescue mission discipline. That's what it really is. When a child refuses to obey you, they're actually disobeying God through you. That's what's going on, since you're his appointed authority in their lives for this portion of their lives. If you won't correct them for this disobedience, you're actually teaching them to disobey God if you won't correct them. So if you aren't correctively disciplining them, you're teaching them to sin, and Jesus said whoever teaches one of these little ones to sin, so we need to correct them. Obedience is right away, all the way with a good attitude. Right away, all the way with a good attitude. And if one of those elements is missing in our children's response to our instructions, then it's not obedience. Applying this takes great discernment from the parents, great ability, because each child's at a different level of development. There's, I don't expect of Huxley what I expect of Archer. Sorry. Yeah, anyway. I expect more of Huxley than Archer. 
because he's three and Huxley's 11. So I have to apply it correctly. But right away, all the way with a good attitude, that's where we're headed. That's where I'm trying to get to with them. That's how I'm trying to obey God personally. It's how God wants his people to obey him. So really, you're just, you're just like the training ground for your kids to learn how to obey God. Most of the discipline over a course of a children's life is formative. Most of it's formative. In the early years, there's lots of corrective because folly's bound up in the heart of a child. So there's lots of corrective at the beginning. But over the course of 18 years, most of it will be formative. But when corrective is required, these are the steps we go through. There's a clear and concise, clear and concise explanation of the disobedience according to their age level. There's a spank on their bum. There's a hug and a kiss. And then we pray for help. My help, their help, and the forgiveness that's available at the cross. Then we're done. Moving on. We're not dragging it out forever. You might say in your heart, and I feel like I've had more of these conversations in Ontario than in Alberta. Like, I could never spank my child. I love them too much. But God's word would respond to you in Proverbs 13, 24. He says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So corrective discipline, it's like, it's uncomfortable work. It's, it's sad work a lot of the time, but it, it's a good work. It's good because you're teaching your children to live in reality. The reality that God has woven into the universe. You reap what you sow, cause and effect, and that God does not wink at sin. But he's also made a way for sinners to come to him and, find, and find, come to him in repentance and faith. So we need to show all those things when we're correcting. Priorities. This one's for all of us. Because our priorities show what we treasure and value. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you teaching your children about your treasure through your priorities? Or church members, what are you declaring to the onlooking lambs in this church about what's valuable by your priorities. Because we can all easily sit through a two-hour movie, a three-hour football game, or spend untold hours on a video game. But then when we come to a half-hour sermon, like this one, and it's approaching like half hour, we start to, at 35 minutes, we start to squirm in our seats. Or a one-hour prayer meeting where we find our minds drifting or we just don't come at all. Perhaps... We'll wake up early to do ourselves up or, uh, you know, work out or get going on the to-do list, but neglect to spend time with the God who made us and loved us and bought us. Or maybe we'll miss church, miss it for sports or miss it for hobbies or miss it for sleep. What are these priorities teaching the lambs? We should be thinking, how can I convey to the little ones the value of Christ through the deliberate ordering of my priorities. Because we're talking with our lives to the little ones. Um, six, deconversion stories. There's an appalling fad, I think it's appalling, definitely, in, in, in Christendom, like in the Christian world, these days, which is called the deconversion story. As people are posting on their social media platforms and wherever how they deconverted from Christianity. Usually, we want to let people know how we converted to Christianity. We tell our testimony. But these people are flaunting their departure from the Christian community in a boastful way, as if to say, I've seen the light. I have a higher level of understanding. I'm not like all those 
silly Christians anymore. I've come to see the light. I just want to explain, though, it's called the deconversion story. I don't think you can actually deconvert. If you actually have a new heart from Jesus, that's an eternal thing, and he's going to cause you to keep walking in his ways. That's the work of his spirit. These are people that professed Christ, and it wasn't real. They never had a true conversion, and then they fall away from the community. So I just want to make that distinction. They were professors of Christ, saying it with their mouths, but their hearts weren't actually changed. And there's been a lot of big names in recent days that have done this, big, big names. And it would seem to me to be a thing to be ashamed of rather than, and to want to keep quiet, rather than seeking fanfare and accolades for being a traitor to King Jesus. This is a stumbling block for the little ones. And I've heard of and known many young sheep whose faith has been unsettled by these deconversion stories, particularly among the youth, as many of these apostates come from the Christian music scene. So here's a warning for all of us from that. This is... This, like, or here's, here's what Jesus does for us. He, he tells us how it's going to be from the beginning, right from the beginning. He tells us to put our hand to the plow and not look back. He tells us to daily pick up our cross and follow him. He tells us all people will hate us on account of him. He tells us in this world we will have tribulation. If you want to be godly, you will be persecuted. Jesus isn't trying to trick anybody into Christianity. He's told us we will have suffering now, glory later. That's the order. And if you're not into that, if you're not into that, then I would beg you, for the name of Jesus and the faith of the little ones who are watching, don't even take your first step down Jesus' path. Honestly consider if you are really willing to run the race right to the end, right to the finish line. Like, count the cost before you throw your lot in with Jesus. You do not want to be the reason some little one turned away from Jesus. There's a day of reckoning coming for these people. And as Jesus said, it would be better if they were drowned in the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So be deliberate in your decision about Jesus and your following after him so that you will not be numbered amongst that accursed group. And the last area of application, education. There's two things I want to say about education. If you know me, you probably know I'm an advocate for homeschooling. I'm pretty passionate about it. I have deep convictions about it. I'm reeling it in right now. (laughs) Convictions for which I would leave this country, but to keep doing it, but the list of open and free countries is getting pretty slim. So, Um, but here's a danger I've seen in myself in the past. I still need to be careful for it. I don't think I'm in it right now. And it's actually pretty prevalent, I've seen, in the homeschool families in Ontario. Homeschooling can become this banner over your life, like the flag you're flying the highest. It can become your mark of righteousness. Many things can become our mark of righteousness. And when something other than Jesus is what we want to be known for, and we seek to set up our own righteousness, a righteousness of our own apart from Christ, or even in addition to Christ... That's a dangerous place. And you're leading your kids into a dangerous place if you have any flags higher than Jesus in your family. Because Jesus had the harshest things in the Bible to say about the self-righteous. Like he railed against them. He hammered them with his words, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
until eventually his patience was spent, and he said the worst thing anybody could ever hear from the lips of Jesus. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. When Jesus decides to leave you alone, like not, not work on you in grace anymore, not move toward you, not woo you, leave you alone, that's a death sentence. And self-righteousness is a sure way to get there. So homeschooling families and any family, if you have any flag higher than Jesus, beware. Do not lead your lambs to the slaughter of self-righteousness. Second, did you know that modern public education was actually developed in its infancy by the Scottish reformer John Knox? I, I didn't know that, as in Knox Presbyterian, that John Knox. Until I read a book called Celtic Lightning, How the Scottish and the Irish Form Canadian Culture. I was surprised to find that. He, he wanted every Scottish boy and girl to learn how to read and write so they could read the Bible for themselves. That was the goal of public education. Well, that's for sure not the goal of public education today. The public schools are not what they used to be when grandma and grandpa went to them. Like They're not even what they used to be when I went to them. This is now an area where parents need to have some deliberate thought about You can't just go with the flow. You need to think about what you're doing in educating your kids. And you shouldn't be surprised. Like, parents can't be surprised if after 12 years in the enemy's boot camp, you've done nothing to combat it, nothing to fight against it, and if they come out waving his flag, you you can't be surprised about that. And I know a number of you faithfully labor in the schools to educate children. People here, your teachers at school, and to be a voice of Jesus in that environment. It's a hard environment these days to be a Christian in, and I commend you for it. And I, I just commend you and, and urge you to stay faithful to the Lord in that position and use every opportunity that you have, because the day is likely coming soon, unless a big change happens in our country, where you'll be pushed out of that field if you desire to stay a good representation of Jesus. Because generally, what has happened over the years is that public education has become a cesspool of the world's ideology. And if you think to yourself, maybe you're thinking, oh, no, not in our little country school. Like, all that LGBT and evolution and worldliness, all those things, they're not really in our little school. Well, they probably are. But just know it's coming, because it's coming from the top down, and it's going to filter to every little country school eventually. And I'm pretty sure it's there already. Satan wants our children. And he's found, he's found and he's leveraged, he's taken public education from its roots and leveraged it to be a great inroad into our children. Because it's not just reading, writing, and arithmetic anymore. It's about worldview. They are forming human beings. And everybody's preaching to your children. So are you being purposeful and deliberate with their education and who's influencing them? You need to think about that. Lastly, the gospel of grace is needed to endure this teaching. I sure feel that. Like, how are you doing, church? How are you doing after hearing all that? How is it landing on you? Do, you? do you feel emboldened? Hopefully some of you feel emboldened to pursue a more deliberate shepherding of the lambs under your care. Maybe you feel compelled to live a more deliberate walk before the onlooking little ones. Or maybe you feel like you failed so much in this area already. You might as well go drown yourself in the lake. That's what you feel. Maybe you feel like, I took up the sword of the Spirit and lacerated your heart with it. 
Do you feel remorse over lost opportunities, wasted time? Are you afraid that you might be now or maybe have been one of these people Jesus warning in this passage? Well, Jesus wants you to take him seriously at this point. I, I think I've made that pretty clear. He wants people who do deliberate good to his lambs. But you know what he also wants you to know? This isn't the unforgivable sin. There's gospel grace for this situation. There's mercy and grace to be found in him. There are new beginnings and new restarts 70 times 7. There's forgiveness every day at the foot of the cross. There is Holy Spirit power to achieve deliberate parenting and grandparenting and example. All of us can have what we need to do this well in him. He doesn't expect you to do it alone either. In fact, he commands you to come to him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So come to Jesus and find rest for your souls. Come to him. If you come to him humble and dependent, he'll be gentle with you. He's, he's down at your level in his humanity. He's come to our level with his arms wide open saying, come, learn from me, the great deliberate shepherd of the sheep. I can show you how to nourish lambs. I can lead you to lead them into green pastures and quiet waters. I can teach you how to 